from my point of view, we all have a legacy. You know, we there's legacy associated with the work that we do as individuals, the companies we work for, uh, and the places that we leave behind. And uh, you know, I think as I've matured over the years, uh, that legacy is really important, and not just from a personal point of view, but in terms of the, the places that we are creating for generations to come. Hey folks, Jason Witten here, your host of the Wealth Faculty Podcast. And today I had a chance to sit down uh, with a very interesting man called Andrew Hoyne. And he is the principal of an architectural firm, Hoyne, uh, and uh, been working in the property uh, development and property consulting uh, area for over 25 years. He is very um, focused and famous for uh, a concept called place making. He's written a book uh, called The Place Economy. And we talk about uh, how uh, creating destinations, uh, places that create um, attraction strategies, uh, make people happier, healthier, more engaged in their surrounding when it comes to building and creating cities, adds value to not only the human experience, but uh, to you as a property investor, property developers, councils, and so on. It was an awesome conversation with Andrew about the quality of uh, quality of you know the thinking that we need for the future to create better places, better quality buildings, better quality uh, places, cities, and locations for people to live in. Uh, I thought it was very, very poignant. I enjoyed this conversation. If you want to find more out about Andrew before we dive into it, give him a shout out at uh, all the W's, Hoyne, H-O-Y-N-E.com.au. Track him down. Uh, He is Australia's leading place economist, um, thinker, designer, and advisor to councils and developers all over Australia and all over the world. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I know Sam Saggers, my business partner, uh, is an absolute fan of Andrew's work as well about the flight equality, about the place economy and what value that adds to us as property investors. So listen, um, enjoy the conversation that I had with Andrew Hoyne today on The Wealth Faculty. Take care. Andy Hoyne, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. Thank you for the invitation. It's uh, great to be uh, getting getting uh, a team to listen to um, the things that we've got to share from uh, a Hoyne perspective. Yeah, I think uh, certainly the world needs to hear it. Certainly from my experience uh, with you and some of the buildings you've been influential uh, in our world, our property world and others, uh, it's certainly something that's so, so vitally important. I'm looking forward to sinking our teeth into that today and hearing some of your wisdom of your, you know, the last 25 years of what you've been doing passionately in this space. But my business partner, Sam Saggers, and, and uh, I know you've done some work for the ARIA Group, one of my favorite developers in Australia, um, you know, loves that, uh, you know, loves the idea of uh, a flight to quality. He talks about place all the time, inspired by you. Um, uh, one of the things I thought I'd sort of kick off with is like, you know, it seems that you might even be a healer of place. Is that, is that something that, uh, you know, drives you or accidentally or on purpose, you know, some of these scars on our, you know, uh, on our cityscape, uh, something that drives you to fix up and make look beautiful, amazing and healthy places to be? Um, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. My, my wife often jokes that I've found my calling. 
um, <laughs> from, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with not-for-profits over the last 30 years. Actually, my business started in 91. So actually uh, now I've had my company for 30 years. And in that time, working for commercial organizations and not-for-profits and now, you know, in a really unorthodox manner, with the work that we do now, um, you know, my wife's like, wow, your two worlds have come together. And most people would think, what the hell is not-for-profit and commercial property got to do with each other? But actually, in the work that we do in place visioning, that's exactly what it is because we're actually trying to create, um, you know, benefit and meaningful solutions for the broader community that actually translate into economic uplift for developers and clients and, and landlords. So, you know, it is kind of the best of both worlds because everybody wins. Yeah. And that, that sort of, it's almost you've created or you've uh, brought to the forefront, the words placemaking in, in what you've been doing. Um, and uh, it always has been that almost clash of those two worlds. Yeah. That'd be lovely, but it costs too much or the, the dollars and cents don't, don't make sense. Um, and um you know, talk to me a little bit about that and, and the listeners here today. I mean, um, you've um, uh, seen a few of our guys at a few of the launches of the buildings, you know, avid property investors, loving the idea of, you know, the spaces and the buildings make, you know, themselves, the owners, the tenants and the area a healthy place to be. Um, was there a bit of a, an epiphany for you about, you know, doing that instead of the regular you know, build a box and and uh, run a spreadsheet type of, um, you know, development, I suppose, you know, helping people in that space? Yeah, look, uh, I've, I think I've worked on over 250 separate developments in my career and we've kind of seen the best and the worst. And from my point of view, we all have a legacy. You know, we there's legacy associated with the work that we do as individuals and the companies we work for. Uh, and the places that we leave behind. And, uh, you know, I think as I've matured over the years, uh, that legacy is really important. And not just from a personal point of view, but in terms of the, the places that we are creating for generations to come. Uh, so we can't think about it so simplistically and single-mindedly as just building something and selling it or leasing it, but actually understanding that effect. Uh, and again, both Back to this kind of notion that it's our really our philosophy, whether I'm talking about place visioning or whether I'm talking about our book series, The Place Economy, that the philosophy is about actually creating our community good uh, while at the same time as creating economic uplift uh, or commercial value. And so those things really do go hand in hand. And so rather than thinking about the traditional notion of development, which was this is what we've always done and we'll just keep doing the same thing again because it works for us, um, that notion of risk profile is completely upside down and back to front because as these really amazing progressive developers have sort of come along in recent years to the industry and are doing such game-changing work, uh, that traditional notion, uh, you know, doesn't hold water. We actually have to be progressive in what we do to achieve the financial returns that we want. Uh, we have to engage audiences. We have to engage buyers, tenants, uh, the only way to do that is to differentiate and actually create something meaningful, uh, destinational, magnetic that people want to be a part of because only then will they pay a premium. Yeah. And uh, I'm assuming right now, you know, last year and, and still now, you know, the world of COVID, something in, in this place idea would be more valuable than ever um, in, in this moment in time. 
Yeah, uh, I was only saying to somebody the other day that I was a bit annoyed to read in the media last year uh, some articles saying, oh, well, that means placemaking's dead. We don't need that bullshit anymore. Oh, um, and the reality is quite the opposite. And that, you know, people who want to sort of have a negative perception about why places uh, offer value and are important to, to the process really don't understand the way, you know, assets are being used and the evolution of, you know, what we can do to extract more value from assets and experiences and, you know, the economic uplift associated with that. So, you know, while the idea of getting, you know, a few thousand people together for an event is less common in most places in the world right now or even in the various states of Australia, it yeah. doesn't mean that we don't still want to get together. It doesn't mean that we don't still want to create places that actually add value to people's experiences and their lives. Quite the opposite. It's never been more important than it is now. You know, with the notion of social distancing and a, a greater sense of isolation, we actually need to be working harder to have an understanding of how to program uh, these ways to bring people together. When I say program, it means not just sort of saying, look, there's some good stuff here, come along. The idea yeah. of programming is having a very clear idea about what it is that you're creating, uh, who is the audience you're trying to engage, what will you do to actually meet their needs and actually give them a great experience, whether it's a temporary activation or something more permanent. So it's about thinking about how do you use spaces at different times of the day, at different days of the week? Um, how do you actually use spaces at nighttime that traditionally may not have been used at all? So again, it's about extracting value, about getting more out of spaces at more times of the day for more kinds of the community that exist in the realm of these locations. One of the, and you just sparked something there for me, one of those, uh, I've been in business 20 years and you know had offices and places that uh, the team would work from for many years. And one of my sort of bugbears was always, you know, it was almost like wasted two thirds of the time, you know, having an office or these office areas were dead, you know, between the hours of this and this, there was nothing else going on. And that's what you're sort of saying. There's so much more value to be created in these spaces if you come at it in the right way. Well, I mean, it's funny. I actually just wrote an article the other day that talked about, you know, particularly with uh, commercial office or with CBD environments that, most asset owners or landlords do not have a great relationship with their neighbor. They're usually other big developers, um, then they probably had some conflict in their history. But if people actually work with their neighbors in these commercial precincts, uh, they can actually create better ground planes and therefore their buildings seem to be more destinational. Uh, there's more curation between the tenancies uh, and there's more reason for people to actually come there on an ongoing basis. These buildings can actually open up earlier because it's not just a token cafe at the bottom of a commercial office building, but actually a precinct that feels meaningful and destinational. Maybe there's, you know, not just the end of trip beneath the building with, you know, uh, some lockers in a shower, but there's something that is, is associated with health and fitness. You know, maybe there's rooftop, you know, and a lot of the sort of regulations that exist in Australia make it really prohibitive uh, for asset owners and landlords to actually leverage and utilize their rooftops. But to bring those to life, you know, lift shafts aside, um, is actually not an expensive ordeal. 
Uh, and it's something that, you know, I'd love to see more rooftops come alive all over Australia because that is one of those really small components of a building that can actually increase its feeling of being destinational and actually having value and being more of a place brand than just a building. Um, you know, the idea of putting nightclubs in the basement um, or, you know, doing other things that are unexpected to actually give that asset a seven-day-a-week uh, opportunity to be utilised and leveraged. It's, um, it's certainly a powerful notion, and, and, and I know uh, you were a strong influence in, in some of the developers that we uh, get the, the privilege to work with, um, you know, bringing those rooftop, rooftops to, to life and designing some of those places. And now for me and many of my clients, we couldn't think of when we see a building without it, we're like, oh, are you kidding me? You know, that's so like yesterday, so, 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 so long ago. Um, and throwing down that gauntlet, I think is amazing. I was just chatting with uh, a fellow yesterday, Charlie Arnott is about regenerative farming and talking about potentially bringing some of those techniques, farming techniques to the cities and on top of buildings and, you know, and all of those things, you're, what you're saying is like, you know, let's be, let's rethink what that looks like because it's, it's better, it's healthier for the building, the assets, the, the owners, the tenants, everybody really at the end of the day. Yeah, and, you know, if you talk about that sort of idea of, you know, rooftop farming and uh, the possibility of doing that in residential communities, um, it's, it goes beyond just the sort of uh, the produce that you might reap from that activity. But again, it's about this notion of engagement, about people seeing additional value. Uh, it also has the potential to uh, have an educational component for children. Uh, it's about you know, getting people outside of their homes and actually thinking about how to use their neighbourhoods better. And those neighbourhoods aren't just the ground plane. They are also the rooftops wherever possible. Uh, I do think that, you know, a, a lot of the reason this doesn't happen is that, you know, people just see rules, regulations and restrictions from yeah. local government, which makes it feel too difficult, too onerous, a pain in the bum. Um, and this, you know, this notion of doing this is not all kumbaya, it's actually really about uh, commercial value and leverage as well as the experience for these residents. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like you're saying, potentially there's like, there's this wasted unutilized value, you know, everywhere you turn in, in old inefficient buildings that could be regenerate, you know, re-energized for the benefit of everyone. Have you seen, have you seen in your experiences now, you know, doing hundreds and hundreds of these things, uh, are you seeing that governments and, and um, you know, uh, councils are a bit more open to it or is it still a bit of a pushing, you know, excuse the French shit uphill with a sharp sticker, hard yards for, for you guys? Yeah, I'd say it's still incredibly difficult. Um, look, there are always some really smart, progressive people in local government. The job is to find them. Um, you know, yeah. if you can engage with uh, the more senior sort of people in development or the CEO, you'll probably find uh, for the most part, you know, some intelligent people willing to listen to a good argument. But the reality of the processes that exist in this country uh, make it so incredibly difficult that in many instances, you can have those intelligent conversations and feel that you're on the same path, uh, trying to deliver something that actually has community value and benefit, but then go and submit a DA and just see it rejected uh, for reasons that just don't make any good common sense. Yes, they might associate with a particular rule or regulation, but they completely lack common sense. And if we had a little bit more of that uh, in our system, we would stop to see, you know, so much 
financial waste occur, uh, absolutely onerous and, and unnecessary delays. And all of these things just add cost. And they don't just add cost to the developer, they add cost to the end user, to the general public, to the person that wants to actually buy a place or rent a place or, you know, be a part of something. They add a cost to the, the broader society that we live in. So, you know, this notion of rules and regulations might seem all good and fair, and, but for the most part, um, it's completely unnecessary. And there's, there should be a gross simplification of the way that we actually approach this uh, through all layers of government. Yeah, and I think uh, I don't think you'd have many people uh, listening in today uh, <laughs> argue the opposite to that one. That's for sure. In in our world, we've all experienced that in property, um, in one way, shape, or form, and said, "Where is the common sense here?" Unfortunately, it's not that common, as the saying goes. Um, it, in yeah, your experience, I, I, I will say that there there is a there is a little bit of change. You know, I I, yeah. I definitely am seeing um, you know local government. Uh, in some areas get on board and sort of support initiatives and uh, that dialogue is increasing. So it's definitely better than it's been before. And I know that there are people sort of in government who would push to see that change occur. But um, I just think there needs to be, you know, more really sort of sensible uh, dialogue um, where there can be, you know, honesty. And look, I do get the issue that that, um, you know, councils face when they hear a lot of hot air from some developers uh, for ideas that they never deliver on, that never come to yes. fruition. So that's that is the thing that's actually put us in this difficult circumstance because there's a lack of faith. Um, there's, you know, there's been, you know, missing, uh, there hasn't been truthful sort of conversations. And it's really about if local government actually see the amount of effort that goes into some of the thinking, some of the vision uh, that's, you know, a major investment for some of these developers that isn't common, then you'd like to think that that extra commitment, that extra spend actually shows it's a bit of a proof point for the fact that they are the ones that they should listen to. They are the ones that are going to deliver that outcome and either by the fact they've done it before or by the fact that they've invested up front in actually engaging those, those consultants who can actually drive something that is best of breed uh, as an example, a benchmark for what can be done. Yeah, and setting some of those uh, benchmarks or, uh, you know, throwing down the gauntlet to, you know, others, I know is one of your uh, passions. You've helped uh, a few of the guys that we work with. So well done in that space. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. But, uh, you know, have you, uh, have you seen around the world, you've done projects not only in Australia, but other places as well. Your work is all over the world. Um, you know, um, we're chatting with um, Marcus off air before uh, our producer about the idea that the idea of placemaking, and you've even said it in, in your books as well, it, it's not necessarily new. It's kind of remembering that we used to do this stuff, you know, in designing our cities and our communities and all of those sorts of things. It was pivotal to our, to our existence. You know, how do you think we forgot that? Or how did, how did it sort of fall out of favor? Was it just an economic thing? Oh, that cost too much. Let's move on. Or what do you think happened? Well, it's funny because, you know, uh, placemaking you know, as a process has actually been around since the 1960s, although it's actually been through a lot of change since then. And interestingly, up until recently, you know, most people working in the space were really focused pretty much single-mindedly on creating community-orientated experiences. And that, that's great, and I'm all for that. 
Um, but there was absolutely no consideration of economic benefit. And in fact, I've had some pretty big debates with famous people in the so-called placemaking industry who are dead against the idea of commercialization or a commercial component. Um, and I've, you know, I think they're entirely wrong on that thinking. Uh, and they've been quite appalled by my stance. But look, I'm going to go back to your question, and that's that, you know, how did all these amazing kind of heritage precincts work so well? And I think that one of the things that people forget is that they put commerce at their core. I mean, these were places of celebration and trade that were magnets for everyone to come together in an area. And yes. secondly, they didn't have local councils with an endless array of rules, which made it difficult for progress to occur. And, you know, I agree we need some rules, don't get me wrong, but we've just gone over the top in this country. You know, we need to create rules assuming that, you know, not every developer is the worst kind and that, you know, yes, those developers do exist, but unfortunately the rules stop all the good developers from actually innovating and actually investing in what could be so much a, a more... A, an experiential and magnetic experience for people. So, you know, I'd love us to be able to go back to those kind of traditional ways of thinking, but I'm not sure that's possible anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like the the pendulum has swung a bit far and it's hard to sort of bring it back almost, you know, clicked into place. Well, mm. you know, um, everyday placemaking, you know, for people listening in ever to unlikely like develop on their own, you know, what could you say to mini placemaking, you know, for property investors or homeowners? Is there any sort of tips or suggestions you could give uh, for those guys um, in potentially keeping this idea in mind? Sure. Look, I, I don't really think about sort of placemaking as a theme in terms of someone's home because yes. I think, you know, I feel the inspiration for home is quite different to one that you would think of. Of a, of a public place, which is really yeah. where placemaking comes alive. But for a small development, I think it's really about having a clear understanding of, you know, who is being targeted to live there or, or to work there. And, you know, and that, that will really help you go through a simple process of figuring out what are the experiences that you can create in that development, which actually offer value to a buyer or a tenant with regard to how they'll actually really enjoy being there. You know, you, you start by analysing what exists in the neighbourhood that, um, that don't, we don't need more of. Uh, what can this building, uh, you know, include that's not going to be onerous from a cost point of view or a space point of view, but will actually really offer benefit. Um, and so, again, it's not necessarily placemaking solutions. You know, again, it might be uh, something for people's pets. It might be, you know, storage for bikes. It might be that you can actually put you know, a really kind of meaningful cafe or, or a retail solution on the ground floor, or there's something really clever you can do with land, landscaping to kind of protect the kind of privacy, but also create a sense of beauty uh, that really sort of matches with the aesthetic of the architecture and creates a distinct look and feel. Yeah, that makes sense. You can, you can uh, uh, design those small experiences but also powerful for the people who are going to use it. Certainly one right now is getting a bit of uh, airtime is, is pets and, and people, you know, delaying children and having, you know, pets earlier or whatever, two dogs instead of two kids at some point or whatever it might be. But that uh, yeah, makes a lot of sense um, in, in that sort of space. You know, the, the, uh, you know, the idea that, um, uh, 
this 20 minute neighborhood, you know, uh, and it's sort of, there's a, there's a government plan and Sam talks about it a bit. And I, and I know, you know, you, you've, uh, you've commented on it as well. Sort of, you know, the 20 minute neighborhood thing is, is that, you know, the, the extra big version of the idea that placemaking becomes the heart of, you know, that 20 minute neighborhood uh, economic hub, those sorts of things when it comes to town planning and these sorts of uh, concepts as well. Look, COVID has had, um, you know, a lot of influence on the way that people are starting to think about the near future. Um, and I think one of the big changes is the value that we now place on these middle and outer ring suburbs and neighbourhoods um, yes. with people less inclined to sort of to travel um, and organisations that will, you know, continue to operate in the CBD, thank God, but also think about creating kind of satellite offices um, I think we're going to probably start to see government do that a bit too. So, you know, a lot of people will have the ability to choose uh, jobs that are probably closer to home. And I think that, you know, some of these kind of suburban areas that traditionally have been pretty second rate um, will now see a lot more investment. So you're, you're seeing, you know, sort of more buoyant high streets, uh, more investment from local government, uh, investment from developers who actually can create sort of better commercial office environments, uh, more kind of meaningful and quality F&B and retail along these strips. Uh, so I'd love to sort of see, you know, these local areas really come to life all over our city rather than just in perhaps the central areas or the, the so-called cool areas. Um, and in doing that, I think that, you know, we have an even greater opportunity to kind of celebrate the nuances, uh, you know, certain neighbourhoods or areas have strong, you know, multicultural or specifically cultural influences that we should be celebrating and really bringing to life. Uh, so we are, you know, like the city talks about their city of villages, um, you yes. know, we are really elevating what makes each one distinct and unique um, because it really sort of helps people get a sense of the joy that they can get from actually visiting each of these villages. And it makes sense because... Um often uh, you see that sort of people will flock together in those places they're attracted because of, you know, those, those types of cultural uh, foods and experiences and so on. And you don't make the most out of those um, as, as an attraction uh, in placemaking makes it makes a lot of sense. Do you see any uh, new trends right now that you think all right over the, over the fence, 10 or 15, 20 years, you know, we're heading in this direction, I don't know, work from home maybe or whatever. Now COVID struck and everyone has to be Zooming instead of catching up face-to-face, -face, you know? <laughs> well, interesting, I think, uh, you know, my view on a trend is almost the opposite of what the media says. And the media says that the trend is to work from home. And right. I believe that that's an awful idea. Um, you know, if you work from home, you will not engage with the people you work alongside, um, you know, you will not actually create rapport. Uh, you will not work, you know, together as productively. Uh, you will miss out on the kind of social aspect of, you know, that sort of environment. But the number one reason why I think that it's a really bad idea uh, long-term is that you lack collaboration. You know, you, you can't, can't really have true and proper collaboration over Zoom or Teams. Collaboration yeah. is about sitting around and bouncing ideas around, sharing thoughts, a collaboration is not just uh, some, a discussion in a meeting, it's the discussion before the meeting, the discussion after the meeting, the walking to the meeting, the having a coffee in the kitchen together. 
You know, it's that idea that we can actually all know that by, you know, one-on-one makes three where ideas are concerned, you know, and you only really get to do that in a meaningful manner face-to-face. Yeah, you can do it on, you know, online every once in a while, but true collaboration happens face-to-face. And that's why people actually need to be together in spaces. It just means we need to rethink about the spaces that we are creating, you know, yes. that there are more breakout zones, that there is more square meterage per person uh, that's being allocated to, you know, commercial environments, um, that we actually create bespoke spaces within environments that exist for particular activities. Uh, so there is sort of more options of the things that people can do within their environments together, but also in isolation as well. Do you see, are you involved in any sort of rethinking of, commercial office space like in that vein right now you know um for me my experience and many other business owners i talk to you know the five-year lease with the renewal and that that kind of commitment to something is almost you know we we don't want that but we we absolutely the things that you're saying i would i want my team to have that proximity and that that experience and and a place that inspires them as well to be creative and and have fun. Are you seeing any changes in the way developers, you know, owners of commercial buildings are thinking about their space right now? You, you might have just yeah. touched on it just then. Sure. You know, look, the, the, there are such big players in the commercial office sector of Australia, or globally, of course. But, you know, some of the developers, uh, you know, from Investor, Dexas, Mervac, Promol, uh, they're incredibly progressive. There's a lot of really smart people in these organisations who have probably been spending enormous amounts of time uh, with their teams since last year, looking at how they can ensure that these office environments feel desirable, destinational, that they have experiences that you're never going to get at home or in your neighbourhood uh, because there's a, a level of sophistication that you, yeah. you know, can't afford to replicate. Um, that there are spaces not just for sort of collaboration, but for training, uh, for hearing people, uh, speakers come in and talk, uh, for actually ensuring that there's that constant sense of education and evolving in your career and that you're stepping up. And that these built environment, are, you know, office, offices of the future are really the kind of great um, places to ensure that that occurs. Um, so yeah, I am seeing a lot of um, a lot of thinking around you know the public spaces in the buildings, you know the way that they can be more progressive to engage and bring people in and sort of you know ensure that sense of uh, safety, social distancing, cleanliness, uh, you know sanitizing, uh, but you know not just the sort of dry stuff and the, the stuff that sort of exists around fear, but actually things that actually focused on excitement uh, and enjoy and a sense of joy um, because, you know, a lot of people don't like coming to any job, but, you know, we need to create environments where whether you love or hate your job, you're having the best possible experience in the work environment that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And many of uh, my team over the years, certainly our majority of our team had been in Sydney for, for a long time, but now we're sort of majority in, in uh, Brisbane and Melbourne, um, just that travel time to, you know, an office environment, you know, the building was not that inspirational or attractive or fun. And, you know, and sometimes the, the daily, the daily grind uh, wasn't, uh, 
wasn't on the positive side for them. So yeah, you're dead right. Like at the end of the day, if a if a building and a place can help someone be happier and healthier, then they can enjoy their work or their life a bit more. That's probably the underlying theme in what you're what you're trying to say here. Because economically, when we talk dollars and cents, you know, healthier, happier people, you know, uh, are more productive. You know. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, the thing that we we need to create in environments is places where people want to stay longer because organizations yes. forget that the uh, the cost of you know retention or rehiring is incredibly high for any organization. So, you know, what you want to do from creating an environment is increase productivity, therefore an increase, you know, revenue and profitability and margin. Um, and you can only really do that to focus on the economic uplift by actually creating that perfect environment where people can actually flourish. Yeah. Well said. That's so, so, so true. How are you seeing green economics uh, evolve, impact planning? I mean, it's, it's popular. It's on the tip of everyone's tongue and mind, um, maybe rightly so. You know, is that impacting how you're working now and the buildings and the things that you're doing? Yeah, it's interesting. It's like I, I hear that term and I think that almost like placemaking, things like sustainability, uh, it was a real buzzword only a decade ago. And that's a, it's yeah. a core pillar for many organizations. However, you know, what I think changing, you know, in commercial behavior right now is that people who are holding the money have a different lens on how they see value and investment. And there's more long-term thinking and decision-making. So that affects how organizations decide to spend money and mm. see these initiatives as an investment, not merely a cost. Yeah. And, uh, I can't remember which large fund it was, but they were sort of, you know, removing themselves. I think it might have been the Magellan Fund. I, I'll, I'll try. I try and remember that one. I'll put it in the show notes. But you know, um, re uh, repositioning what they own in in terms of billions of dollars in that sort of space when it comes to the future, out of oil and into something else, um, which is uh, quite influential right now, and certainly, uh, certainly buildings that. Uh, going to add value to the future rather than devaluing the future would be uh, well on people's radar when they're, when they're doing their spreadsheets. That's for sure. Mate, it, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, global trends in this space, you know, uh, health, wellness, um, you know, placemaking, livability, green, sustainable, you know, is there something, uh, is there something in there that, uh, you know, uh, you're working on now. You've got your second book. Uh, is it out now? Your second book's out now, right? The placemaking number two. Yeah, uh, actually, that came out in 2019. Um, yeah. So the place economy volume two was launched. Then we were in, anticipating launching volume three probably last year, as we'd done so much work on it. And it was near completion, um, but when COVID hit, you know, everything changed, and certainly we wanted to decrease yeah. the amount of money and resources we were putting into a project like that. But uh, we've probably had to rewrite about half the book. Um, I've still been speaking to people uh, internationally on a pretty regular basis. So we're either interviewing people in other countries or they're calling us to ask for advice. Uh, but it's been interesting, that, you know, having those ongoing conversations about how different countries are, are managing um, th their situation at the moment. And, it's certainly played into the way that we're thinking about the kind of 
the thought leadership that we're trying to create to sort of help other people in development. Uh, and we want that third book to be really compelling and of the moment. And so that's meant that we've had to kind of recreate so much of it with the last year in mind. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And who's your, uh, you know, greatest professional influences right now for you? You're, you're, you know, talking to people from all around the world. You know, uh, the podcast is called The Wealth Faculty. And we, we, it's a bit of a play on words. One side is the faculties, your, your personal, mental, emotional, physical faculties that you have in life. And then on the other side, it's the, the faculty team members that you sort of call on and ask for advice and assistance throughout your life. Who's inspiring you right now, professional influencers you know, around the world? Oh, wow. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I can't think of an exact name off the top of my head, but um, I, I am really enamoured by um, a series of books and a series of podcasts that all relate back to, to, uh, to writers, um, Stephen Dubner and Steve Levitt, who uh, created uh, the, this kind of Freakonomics. So Freakonomics was originally a book um, yeah. and it's ended up being a whole series of uh, different types of content. And, you know, what's really interesting about that is that, you know, here I am coming from a more sort of design, creative, aesthetic background, um, but now really spending a lot of my time thinking about uh, consumer behaviour, general public behaviour, but also, you know, economic impact on uh, an over opportunity uh, with regard to so many of these places that we are helping to deliver. Um, and for me, listening to Freakonomics has been so enlightening because, uh, you know, they kind of talk about all these incredibly good ideas that, uh, back to the point before, that in hindsight often feel like common sense. Yeah. But we just find that as a society we get into a habit of doing certain things because we've always done them or because the greater populace has decided that that's the most sensible approach that we should take. But in actually taking a step back and analysing it uh, with, a, again, a different lens, uh, we see that there are so many things that we could be doing more intelligently to actually deliver better outcomes for people's livability um, and the sort of experiences that uh, people get the chances to have. So, yeah, look, there's a bunch of stuff around Freakonomics. Um, I suggest anything that relates to that, their podcast, books or whatever, absolutely have a look at it. Yeah, nice. It, uh, I have read that book and it uh, certainly certainly opens your mind to different ways of seeing things, that's for sure. Um, you're doing some great work in the regional centres, Spark. You know, um, talk to us about, about that. And, you know, me growing up in, in the country, I grew up in... Uh, uh, a town called Charters Towers in North, far North Queensland. And uh, it was very rare that uh, anyone ever built anything up there um, or even thought about, you know, improving the, uh, the built environment. Uh, uh, can you tell the listeners, uh, you know, what's going on and how are you focusing helping those regional centres sort of maybe re even rebirth some of that energy into their towns? Yeah, I've got a real interest in uh, you know uh, regional hubs and um, and rural towns uh, just because I think that there's so much underutilized potential uh, mm. you know lots of very intelligent people who are in these environments that we're not sort of tapping into 
Um, the, the kind of original idea that I had for this was, um, it's funny, I'm, there's not many people who even really know about it, so I'm surprised we're having this discussion, but um, SPARC stands for Strategic Partners Aiding Regional Communities. And about three or four years ago, I, I developed some thinking around the fact that many Australian country towns were dying because yeah. you know, industries were closing and young people were moving to the cities. And this has been going on for you know decades. And it also is not an Australian problem. It's all over Europe and the USA. And, and my plan was I wanted to actually uh, do a pilot project and it was going to take me a number of years to do. Um, and I wanted to embark on this kind of ambitious project to prove beyond doubt how the co-creation, and I mean that with the co-working with the community, of a vision could actually inject new energy and attract new commercial opportunities to struggling you know, regional towns in Australia. So the plan was actually to get regional towns to submit applications to win a two-year economic and social strategy um, tailor-made for them by Hoyne and a team of expert partners who would basically work for free on the whole project for two years. And, you know, this is not just about creating some nice new landscape in the city centre or a fancy logo. It was very focused on jobs, commerce and entrepreneurialism. And, you know, yeah. it was all about leading to improved local economies and restoring community pride and optimism, which, you know, is severely lacking in any of these places who have, you know, mass job losses and so I, I wanted to prioritise the, um, the adaptive reuse or, or the reinvigoration of existing community assets. And uh, there are a lot of those in these places sitting there unloved and unused and empty. And um, you know, the process was to, to be a co-creation with people living and working in the communities. And the big goal was for the attraction, retention and growth of residential and commercial populations. So I wanted to attract businesses that didn't exist in these areas to move there and actually open businesses or and actually to assist people to open businesses locally. And I thought that eventually it might later on trickle down rebranding and repositioning the town, you know, it might have a, you know, a big event, uh, you know, festival, it might have things through the year, programmed activities, but it was really that core idea of job creation beyond anything else, such as, you know, aesthetics, which could occur down the track. And just like you, you know, my personal point of view, you know, emanated from when I was a kid growing up in Wangaratta and um, the Bruck uh, woolen mills closed down and, and, you know, hundreds and if not thousands of jobs disappeared. And so therefore hundreds of families were left without any income. And, you know, it's probably like, what's well, probably a conversation in the Latrobe Valley about when Hazelwood, you know, and uh, the impact that that's going to have and, and having already. And so, you know, when in a dominant industry or employer leaves a regional area, the jobs and the hope goes with them. And so, mm. you know, local services and infrastructure fall apart because there's no funding, there's no people, and there's nothing available. So people just stop caring and therefore people stop coming. And so my plan was to use Town Spark uh, as a program to reverse the process for one entire town, therefore hopefully leading to other towns to be inspired and transformed. And we'd actually create a blueprint of how to do this. And the big aim was to capture the attention of decision makers across the country who would see our work and the results, and it would convince them to take similar action for other types of uh, towns. But yeah. to be completely honest, you know, I did a lot of preliminary work and I spoke to a lot of people and I was gonna try and fund it myself. But with the fact that I put so much of my own money into the place economy with no you know, personal return, 
And we do actually help out pro bono some other charities. I just got to a point that I was trying to figure out how to kind of get this off the ground without impacting the commercial operations in my own day-to-day business. Um, and to be honest, when 2019 occurred and the bushfires happened, I was like, "Whoa, the name Spark no longer feels appropriate to uh, use in a rural uh. setting. And, and then, you know, look, to be honest, one of the best things to come out of COVID has been that thousands of families have moved permanently to regional cities and rural towns. And I expect yes. that we're about to see really positive outcomes from that over many years to come. An opportunity to reignite those those communities, which which sorely needed, like you said, and and also too part of what I think uh, I've experienced, and, and I was going to ask you this as well, you know, reinventing my business, and and literally the whole world had to reinvent business for a while, or maybe forever, um, where you can do business now um, at a distance. Um, it's not as potentially as engaging uh, as an office all the time, but you know. Like you said, there's these um, changes happening that might be uh, quite beneficial and hopefully stay for those small towns. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we're, we're going to see some really positive outcomes. And, you know, yes, I guess, you know, the, the, the Zoom, uh, you know, approach to doing business is going to help. Um, but, you know, I'd love to think that we have, uh, you know, federal government and state governments uh, thinking a lot more about investment in infrastructure, uh, public transport, fast rail, uh, and yeah. really enabling people to kind of live those uh, more rural uh, lives, but actually still play a really key part in what is uh, happening in vibrant cities. Well, um, I was having a, a bit of a deep conversation with a few uh, big thinkers not so long ago, and uh, we we're talking about the uh, the government debt. Uh, that we've recently incurred, um, you know, uh, throughout COVID. And there was an interesting theme to this conversation. One of them was, uh, listen, this debt's never, ever going to get much cheaper. We should actually borrow double or triple it and actually fix up a lot of our infrastructure around this country. We're, we're not going to get, maybe, maybe not going to get a chance to do this ever again at this at this price. But, you know, um, it was an interesting thought because I do think some of those towns and also that, you know, those infrastructure projects, uh, would be would transform. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I um, you know, I talk to lots of people in business and, and communities, and uh, I think they assume that my focus is going to be on, you know, branding the place uh, or naming it uh, or doing the marketing for it. And yes, we do all those things. But actually, it's interesting because I often go into these uh, larger meetings and I'll ask a large group of people, what do you think is most important that we do here? And I very rarely, if ever, get the answer I'm looking for. And the answer is generally job creation. So they think, yeah. hold on, aren't you a guy who does place visioning to create meaningful destinations and property marketing? But for a lot of these other these types of projects, if we actually want to create, you know, compelling livable destinations, that jobs are the first thing that needs to be resolved. So, you know, the idea of, um, you know, federal and state governments investing more into some of these infrastructure projects and actually creating more quality jobs is incredibly powerful for communities in different parts of Australia. Um, because if you don't have quality jobs, uh, then everything else sort of falls by the wayside comparatively as uh, being a you know, in, in terms of its importance for families. Yeah. And um, 
like economically too, you know, in that sense, you know, you, you've said it a number of times today as well, you know, jobs drive value in, in a place, uh, people's ability to be employed and, you know, get mortgages and, and uh, pay for coffee and go to the nightclub and buy some drinks and those things, you know, it, they kind of go hand in hand. And, and uh, certainly um, it makes a lot of sense when you say it, because uh, if they don't have jobs, then they're going to leave that town anyway and go to the other place, aren't they? And really that's, that's um, so, so important to, to, to put as a big rock. Yeah, I think, um, you know, part of that thinking was probably a real driver as to why I started the Place Economy series in the first, you know, instance. Um, you know, there were a lot of kind of reasons why, you know, and we've invested, and you know, I would have invested over a million dollars in cash, not in value, but in cash to actually, you know, in, interrogate, investigate, uh, interview and create the content for, I think, what is probably 150 case studies from around the world now. Um, so, you know, that investment, you know, is not like some sort of flippant piece of self-promotion. The idea yeah. of creating something that's hopefully considered a global piece of thought leadership is done because I want it to actually have impact. I want it to change behavior. I want people to actually see the value and be inspired to create better development. Uh, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to be told by developers that I've spoken to in other countries that has literally made my day. Um, they've said to me, we've literally used your books as a guide on how to create some of the, the projects that we've delivered on. We've literally used your book to go, how would Hoyne do it or how would the place economy, you know, represent uh, a, a best outcome for that particular category of what it is that we're working on and you know that means that it, you know it's really it's in the way of achieving its goal which is what it set out to do and it makes me really proud but it makes me feel that you know we're doing something that is actually having an impact uh, which is you know a good feeling absolutely i i can get you i can give you some direct feedback from the influences that you've had locally with our clients and our tenants living in the buildings that you've influenced their lives are much better and i and i believe um, everyone in that process has benefited from from that. So uh, well done. Your passion and your your <laughs> vision is uh, is certainly paying off. I certainly know that for my clients and their and their clients as well. So thank you. Cheers. Um, great job, Andrew. It's been great to chat with you today, but uh, I think uh, we need to uh, let you go. Uh, you said you usually have beers on a Friday, but uh, um, maybe it's uh, green tea this afternoon. But uh, before <laughs> I do let you go, it's been good to chat with you about this because it's really, uh, really um, triggered a few questions in my mind. And I'd love to maybe get uh, get you on again in a, in a few months' time or in, in, and maybe even get you to our mentoring and talk about this stuff because really understanding those the, the meeting of those important things uh is actually vitally important for uh, making good decisions when it comes to the economic outcome of, of, of places and spaces and property and, and so on. I think it's fantastic. But oh, there's a question I always ask all of my guests um, at the end of the podcast. And uh, what is the true meaning of wealth to you, Andrew Hoyne? Uh, time. Wealth is, you know, for me, it's always about time. I've got an amazing relationship with my wife and three kids and, you know, the idea of, of wealth is the ability to kind of spend time the way you would like to spend it. And I love my job and I love coming to work. I, I'm really excited about the things that I'm involved in and hopefully the, the positive influence that we have. 
But, uh, you know, it's just about the way that you allocate, use your most important and valuable resource, which is time. Great answer. Uh, I agree with that one. <laughs> well done. Thank you very much for joining us on the Wealth Faculty today and um, have a great weekend. Cheers. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Wealth Faculty. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe. We're all good podcasts are found. You can find us there. And if you want to watch it, you can subscribe on YouTube, Positive Mentor TV. And until the next episode, take care. Bye for now.